The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Uh, This morning's scripture reference is going to be in Mark. We're beginning in chapter 15, verse 33, and we're going to go through 16, verse 8. And there are Bibles scattered underneath the chairs if you'd like to follow along in the Bible, but it will also be in the screen or on the screen up behind me. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema shabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled away a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary... Mary, the mother of Joseph, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for, f- for trembling and astonishment had seized him, them. Excuse me. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. So as Christians, we believe that today, that Easter is the most important date of the year. In fact, we believe that Easter commemorates the most important event in the history of the world. 
the most important event that has ever happened and ever could or ever will happen in the future. We believe that's what Easter is and that's what we are commemorating this morning. In fact, we believe it's so momentous and so awesome. We believe that it's something that is meant to be celebrated. In fact, we believe that it's something that's so important, something that's so great that it should be celebrated above all other celebrations. That's because we believe that what we are commemorating, what we are remembering, what we are celebrating here on this Easter morning is the event that has affected and changed the most people in all of history and ever. What has done far more good to far more people than anything else ever could. We believe that this event is so significant that we actually, as Christians, we celebrate it every week. The Jews, before Jesus Christ was risen, they celebrated, they worshiped on uh, the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And after Jesus' resurrection, which happened on a Sunday morning, Christians changed the day of worship to Sunday in order to celebrate every week that he is risen. He is risen indeed, that the tomb is empty. In fact, as Christians, we believe that Easter is so important. It is so magnificent. It is so significant. It is such a huge deal that we seek as Christians not only to celebrate it at Easter, not only to celebrate it every Sunday, but we seek to celebrate it every day of every year. It is that big a deal. It's so significant and so wonderful that we're told in Scripture that, that the subject of Easter is the celebration of heaven. The subject of Easter is the celebration of heaven for all eternity. In fact, we're told that we are, as marvelous as it may be this morning, that we will never catch up to how marvelous and how great it is, but we will spend, if you are a believer, eternity in wonder at what happened at Easter. It's, the, it's been the wonder of wise men. It's been the joy to the dying and comfort to the hurting. It has, it has inspired artists and sculptors and songwriters throughout history. When we get a glimpse of the angels in scripture, anytime we get a glimpse of heaven and we see what's going on there, we see the angels singing in wonder of the Lamb. And you, this morning, the question is, where do you fall in that celebration? Uh, maybe you're moved and you're, man, you are, you, are, you are pumped and you are excited this morning to celebrate what, who Christ was and what he has done on your behalf, but maybe not. Maybe you look from the outside and, and you, it feels like a little bit like a, so I'm a dad and uh, I've had the joy of going to my kids' uh, ball games and to my kids' uh, like recitals. And, and here's something that I've discovered, that nobody else cares as much about my kids' game or my kids' recital as I do, and nor should they. 
Uh, the only people at any gathering to watch their kids play sports, they're not interested in your kid or the score of the game. There's nobody there to watch that when my son Landon, seven years old, was playing basketball this past season. No one was gathering there to see great ball played. It was only parents who cared to be there. And when we gather at my daughter's dance recital with all the other parents filling the auditorium, they do not care about my daughter's recital performance, nor do I care about theirs. We're all there just to see our individual kids do their part of their individual song. Everybody else is looking from the outside. And I had this sort of theory I won't get into, but like how, how like the, the interest that people have, uh, it's like concentric circles on the way out. So there's the parents who really care about their kid and their actual kid's performance. And there's the grandparents who are just there because they love their grandchildren. And then there's aunts and uncles who are there because they feel obligated to be there. And then there's everybody else who has no desire and no concern at all. And maybe that's you this morning with Easter. And you feel like you're looking in from the outside at something that doesn't concern you, something that doesn't stir your heart, something that doesn't affect you and stir your soul. And that's okay to acknowledge that this morning if that's you this morning. Do you stand in wonder at the bloody cross and at the empty tomb? Do your, are your eyes ever wet with joy, tears of joy, when you think about who Jesus was and what he's done for you? It's the most significant, most important event in history and is the thing to be celebrated above all celebrations but you won't have any cause to celebrate. You won't have any reason to celebrate unless and until you understand, until you understand how high the stakes were before Jesus came for you. You won't, you won't have any reason, you won't have any desire, you won't be able to celebrate until you know and you experience for yourself the power of what happened on that weekend 2,000 years ago. This morning, we're gonna take a look at why we believe Easter is worth such a big celebration. So about 500 years before Jesus was even born, a songwriter wrote a song. It was recorded in the book of Psalms. And if you have your Bible, you can turn there, Psalm 49. There's also Bibles under the chairs if you'd like one. Psalm 49. And this songwriter who wrote this psalm, wrote this song, wrote a song about life and it paints a pretty bleak picture of life. It's a picture, and here's the thing about it is though, it's a picture that we all know exists, but we don't want to acknowledge. You guys have any truths about that in your life? Like truths in your life that you know are true, but you don't really want to think about it or acknowledge it? It's like if you ever have gone to a, your aunt's house and for some reason at some time in her past, she had a nude picture painted of her and it's up in the bathroom or the living room. Like that, that picture is there, but you do not want to acknowledge that it's there. You don't want to look at it. You don't want to be reminded of that truth. And there are truths in our lives that are like that, but there's one great truth that is like that that we don't like to think about. But the psalmist, the songwriter of Psalm 49, that's what he was writing about. 
Look at verses one through four. Hear this, all peoples, so he's writing to everyone. Give ear, all inhabitants of the earth, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So he's saying, I'm writing a song that's gonna pose this riddle to you that applies to every person throughout history. Look, look down at verse seven, jump down there. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others, their graves or their homes forever. What he's telling us is a, a couple of things. He's telling us, first of all, a truth that we all know, and that truth is very simple, that we are all going to die and there's no way around it. He says, listen up, everybody who's on the earth, listen to me. He says, whether you are rich or poor, you're going to die, and there's no price that you can give in order to ransom or save or pay for your own life. There's no way around it. No matter how rich you are, how poor you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how good looking you are, no matter how much you have it together, no matter how famous you are, there's one line that waits for us at the end of every single one of our lives, and that is death. And there is no way around it. There's no way to cheat it. There's no way to uh, circumvent it. There's no way to pay yourself out of it. It is there waiting for all of us. It is a truth that we all know that death waits for all of us. But then he talks about a fear that we all have. Look at verse 14. Like sheep, they, that is everyone, they are appointed for Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word that is a, a, almost interchangeable for hell. So he says, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Listen to this. Death shall be their shepherd. Isn't that like sad and terrible? Like sheep, you are all appointed for Sheol. Death shall be your shepherd. Here's the thing that we all know. The truth that we all know is that we're all gonna die. The fear that we all have is, what if life after death is worse than it was before? What if life after death is worse like it was before? Death is their shepherd. What if it, what waits for me on the other side when I close my eyes for the last time is worse than it is now? Maybe you believe in hell. Maybe you believe in reincarnation. Either way, you're wondering, does my life measure up? Does my life get me there so that on the other side of death, I feel like it's gonna be better? Or maybe you believe in just annihilation, like when you die, you die and you go away. But isn't that even bleaker? That you live your life and you build your life and you build a nest egg and you get a home and maybe you get married and you have some kids or you build a business or you build your career or you get an education or you collect seashells or tea kettles. I almost know a lady who, who collected tea kettles. It's a bizarre thing, but maybe you, amass, you, you spend your life amassing this, the best collection of tea kettles in the world. You have them displayed in your home and you spend all this time and energy and effort into it. All of a sudden you die and those tea kettles go to somebody who does not care about them, which is everybody else, by the way. <laughs> but that's the way most of our life is. 
We build it amassing money and wealth and relationships and maybe a name for ourselves or, or maybe some sort of small business empire or large business empire only to know that on the other side we turn it over if we believe in annihilation that we turn it over that we cease to exist and that our end is bleak and dark and terrible and then what we built our life amassing gets wasted on the next generation. We all know that we will die and we all are afraid that death will be worse than life has been. But the third thing that we don't wanna look at is a cause that we don't wanna face. That's the scariest part of this. If you look back in verses seven and eight, he says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. The idea here is that you and I, that we all owe something to God. But the fact that he created us and made us, we owe something to him. We owe the honor that is due only to God. We owe the worship that is due only to God. We, do, we owe obedience that is due only to him. And the idea here is that if we don't pay it in life, that we pay it with our death that we all owe God worship and honor and obedience. And if we don't pay him what is due in, in life, then it gets paid in death. And the thing, the idea here is that we owe absolute honor and absolute worship and absolute obedience to him. And if we don't pay it in life, we pay it in death. And no one in this room and no one on this earth, no matter how great a person they are, has nailed that. Every single one of us has failed in giving him honor and worship and obedience, the perfect honor and worship and obedience that is due to him. And so he says, no man can ransom another or give God to God the price of his own life. The cause that we don't wanna face is that it's our own actions and our own nature that doom us. It's our own actions and our own nature that doom us. And so if that's true, then there's no way that I can save myself. I used to play a little bit of racquetball. I love it. I want to play again. But I used to play a little bit of racquetball, and I had a really, really ugly backhand, a really, really, really ugly backhand. It was semi-effective, but it was, it was really ugly. And I knew that because my backhand form was wrong, that, that I could never get better as a player. But because I had taught myself how to hit, I could not teach myself a better way. I was doing the best that I possibly could. If I was gonna be, have my backhand to be changed, I had to have someone else come in and help me to change it. And it's like that to the millionth degree in life. Because each of us, it's our own actions, it's our own nature that doom us. There's no way that we can pay for our own life and there's no way that we can help ourselves out of this problem that we're in. That's something that we all intuitively know that no matter our station in life, none of us has the ability to rescue ourselves from ourselves. No matter your station in life, nobody has the ability to rescue ourselves from ourselves. 
So, so far, this is a really kind of a bummer of a song. And a really kind of a bummer of a songwriter. He's like that sad songwriter that you listen to after a breakup or something. It's really, really sad. It's really, really bleak. It, it does a great job in diagnosing the promise, the problem of life, and it puts us all in the same footing, but man, it is depressing. But there's a little bit of hope that the songwriter gives us. A little glimmer of hope that points ahead over 500 years in the future. And it's this verse, verse 15. He's just been saying that like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol, that death will be their shepherd. It gets even worse. It says their form shall be consumed in Sheol. Verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. The songwriter has gone deep enough in the darkness to find that he can't do anything to help himself and it's there, it's there that he sees a glimmer of hope that lies, that lies there for him. 500, over 500 years before Mary and Joseph, a peasant carpenter and his wife, would go to a barn and give birth to the son, their son Jesus, the psalmist realizes that if anyone's going to help me, it has to be God because I cannot help myself and no man can help another man. No man can ransom another man's life nor his own life. If it's a payment that I can't pay, Maybe God can, but God will ransom my soul from the power of shield. To be ransomed means to be a payment that's given in return for your life. And if you and I are gonna have any hope, if we're to have any hope, then it's that we are ransomed not by anybody else and not by ourselves, but that's that we are ransomed by God himself. We need to be ransomed. And that's exactly why God took on flesh and became a man. It's why Jesus came and was born and he lived a blameless life. By living that blameless life, he was paying to God the life of honor and obedience and worship that none of us have been able to, to pay back to him. It's why he died a, a painful and humiliating death on a Roman cross. In doing so, he paid the death penalty that we owed him. Remember, if we're not gonna pay it in life, we have to pay it in death. He paid it with his life, and then he paid your death penalty and my death penalty for us. And it's why he cried out on the cross in the text that was read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus, the second person that God had, was experiencing that painful separation that we were just talking about. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. When Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 22. Now Psalm 22, you don't have to turn there, but I'm gonna read this real quick. Psalm 22, written again over 500 years before Jesus would even be born, 
Listen to this description. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. It's talking about how, how emaciated he was. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar if you know the story? It is over 500 years before Jesus would be on, on the cross and is being predicted by the psalmist David, that Jesus was going to come, be surrounded by a company of evildoers, and have his hands and feet pierced, and his garments divided, and for his clothing, lots cast, while he paid the penalty and endured the agony for you and for me. But then the next thing that happened is that God rescued Jesus from death on that Sunday morning. The next part of that psalm, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Listen to Jesus praying this. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the oxen. On the third day, Jesus was crucified for your sin and paid the death penalty for you and me on Friday. But on the third day, on Sunday morning, the God, the Father, rescued the Son from death so that you could be rescued from death. Because what was happening there is that Jesus in his paying his perfect life and paying death and resurrecting is that he was being your substitute. He endured what you and I were destined to endure as being traitors against God so that he could be, so that we could stand in his stead in God's favor. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. He paid the perfect life, the atoning death, and then he conquered the threat of death over us so that whoever would believe on him would receive his credit on their behalf. But God will ransom my soul. You and I before, by nature and by actions, we were shepherded by death. That's the picture there. Death is like shepherding us through our life, taking us to his final fold his, and letting us in as we close our eyes and breathe our last. Only a greater shepherd could come and free us from the power of that shepherd. Only someone from outside the system could come in and help us. But who would want to do that, and why would they want to do that? Why in the world would God, why would Jesus want to come and do that for you and for me? Why? It's that, it's that, it's that concept that he did come and do that for us, that's the head-scratching truth of Easter, it's that truth that, has been, that makes it the celebration of all celebrations. It's what makes it the wonder of wise men and the song of angels. 
Jesus rescues us simply because he has placed his love upon us. Jesus came to rescue you when you are being shepherded by death simply because he looked at you with you having nothing going for you, with you not deserving anything other than death, and he looked at you and he placed his love upon you. He placed it on you. And he did so at an unimaginably great cost to himself. The scripture that Grace read for us between songs, John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He went after that to say, I don't call you servants any longer. I now call you friends. And then he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Christ came and paid an unimaginably great cost for you simply because he looked at you and he placed his love upon you and paid for that love. It was determined years, eons, eternity before you were even born. He didn't look at your life and say, there's something there to salvage. Scripture tells us that Christ was slain before the foundation of the earth. That means before you were a gleam in your great, great grandfather's eye, before that ever happened, he looked upon you in love and said, I will place my love on that person that's being shepherded to death and I will be their shepherd. How, how crazy is that? How unimaginable is that? Jesus came, he lived, he suffered, he died, and he rose. Why? Because of love. It was a undeserving, fierce, costly, scandalous love that he loves you with, that he placed upon you. It was an undeserving love. You had nothing going for you. You didn't have any marks on your side of the ledger. He looked upon you and your lack of, uh, any, of anything in your side, and he said, I will come after them, though they do not deserve it. He came after you with a fierce love, that song, Reckless Love, that we sang. He came after you with a fierce love, because how many of us have put up a fight? Him of us here are putting up a fight right now. God, you can have this in my life, but not this. If following you means me giving up this, then I don't want to follow you. And you ran or you are running right now as far away as you can from him. And yet he comes after you with a fierce, undeniable love. If he has placed his love upon you, it will not be denied. It will not be turned away. It was undeserved in the beginning. And because of that, it is fierce in him coming after you and coming after your heart. If he has placed his love upon you, he is coming for you. If he placed his love upon you, he came for you. 
It is undeserving and it is fierce and it is costly. The second person of the Godhead became man and humbled himself. Can you imagine the, that's the most humbling situation you've been in? Christ became a man. When scripture tells us he created the world and holds it together, he became a man. Ignored. No kings, no rulers cared if he lived or died. Forgotten in Palestine. Rejected by his own friends who were fishermen. Not the learned, not the smart, not the rich, not the powerful. Fishermen. Rejected him in the end. It was undeserving. It was fierce. It was costly. And his love is scandalous. If he has placed his love upon you, it is scandalous. Because you and I deserve death to be our shepherd. And he said, Nothing that they do will make them, me come after them. I come after them because of my grace. And nothing that they do can turn me away from being their shepherd. That is scandalous. He came after us with a, an undeserving, fierce, costly, scandalous love. And that's what Easter is all about. And if he has come after you with that kind of love, how valuable does that make you? You're not valuable because you're talented or smart or good looking. You're valuable simply because he placed his scandalous, fierce, undeserving, costly love upon you. It's that love that saves us from death and hell. But it saves us to something, not just from death and hell, but it saves us to something, or rather to someone. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Why? Because he will receive me. He will receive me. Are you tired this morning? Are you broken? Are you hurting? Are you suffering? Are you addicted? Are you shamed? Are you unfaithful? Are you forgotten? He has made a way to receive you through all that. And he is the bomb to heal all of that. Easter, the truth of Easter, is the assurance that he has placed his love upon you. The bloody cross, the empty tomb, historical facts, that are your assurance that he has placed his love upon you.
Easter, the bloody cross and the empty tomb is the assurance that he will receive you. Easter, the bloody cross, the empty tomb is the assurance that he will be your shepherd, not death. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. When you realize that, it changes everything. When when you realize that, you will personally know that the truth of Easter is the thing to be celebrated above all other celebrations. Suddenly, when you realize that, the gruesomeness of Good Friday, and it is gruesome, all of a sudden looks different to you. When you realize that he has come after you, then suddenly the outrageousness of Easter feels different. And Easter is outrageous. We are asserting that a man was crucified on a cross, laid in a tomb, and then rose again and sent his Holy Spirit to us afterwards. It is outrageous. But all of a sudden, the outrageousness of his resurrection is a blinding shaft of joy and hope for you. All of a sudden, the outrageousness of the free, undeserved, unconditional love of Jesus no longer offends you and no longer confuses you. When you realize it, it changes everything. So this morning, this is my plea to you on this Resurrection Sunday. Stop striving to build a life for your own name here. Recognize that the recognize the debt that you owe to God and recognize that you can't ransom yourself and bow your knee to him and accept his payment on your behalf. Christian, this morning, this resurrection Sunday, behold the one who has placed his love upon you. And let's all celebrate like no other celebration. For we've been rescued. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.